We are going to transition to our teaching time uh, this evening, and we're going to get into what is known as the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election. Now, before we begin looking at this very profound doctrine, it's important just to review where we have come from and what we've studied so far in this series on the mercies of God. For the previous two study times that we had, we looked at the doctrine of sin, what is called hamartiology, the study of sin as the Bible teaches it. And I made the point several times during those two previous sessions that we have to begin with the bad news first. If we are to understand what we are saved from, we need to look at that which has created the need for salvation in the first place. One theologian by the name of Machen, J. Gresham Machen, said this, just in, in terms of, of, of speaking the gospel to unbelievers, he said this, it is quite useless to ask a man to adopt the Christian view of the gospel unless he first has the Christian view of sin. One of the problems that we face today when we look at the church around us is that the church is filled with people who do not understand what sin even is. They've been invited into the church for wrong reasons and are there for all kinds of unbiblical motivations. As Machen says, the gospel isn't going to do its work if as part of the gospel we do not include the bad news, the reality that we are saved from something and that something is sin. So the last two weeks we looked at sin and we looked at two important aspects of the doctrine of sin. We looked first at the concept of original sin. We defined it as this, original sin is the effect of Adam's sin on all his descendants. As the representative of the human race, Adam introduced guilt, corruption, and death to all of his offspring. That's original sin. Remember, we, we, we looked at original sin in terms of how Adam's sin relates to me today. And we looked at the various views given in response to that question, and we looked particularly at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, which teaches that Adam was a special kind of representative. And as a representative, he bore a special responsibility. And when he fell, he fell as humanity's representative. Then the second week, we looked at the topic of total depravity. And we defined it this way. Total depravity is the devastating impact of sin on humanity, including number one, and we looked at these three components, number one, the pollution and corruption of all aspects of a person's existence. So total depravity means that every part of who you are has been corrupted by sin. Your feelings, your, your decision-making abilities, your intellect, all of that has been 
corrupted by sin. And secondly, the second component of total depravity is that that results in a complete inability of a person to do what pleases God. You may do good works. The unbeliever may do good works. The person outside of Christ may do a lot of good works and be even elevated by society as a man or woman of integrity, of sacrifice, of morality. And yet all of that is done from a wrong motivation. It is not done by faith in Christ. It is not done for the glory of God, and therefore it cannot please God. And then number three, the third aspect of total depravity is that sin in that corruptive, comprehensive sense is universal to all mankind. That all of Adam's descendants are conceived and born as sinners. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all this leads to is a, is a state, and it's so important to understand this state. And I want to read Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3 as a summary of sin's impact on every single individual of the human race. The only exception, of course, being our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Jew, Gentile, male, female, adult, child, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what language, this is the state of humanity apart from Christ, dead. And I want to emphasize this, that no matter how deep or or, or how uh, ugly of a view you have of sin today, no matter how harsh you look on the sin in, in your life, it is important to note this, that it is much worse than you even know. It is so important to come to that realization that sin is always so much worse than what we conceive it to be. Even even we who have been redeemed, who have been given new life in Christ, even when we look at the sins that we commit now, we must recognize that even with a new mind, we still do not see sin in its comprehensive ugliness as God sees it. And it is so important to realize that, and it's so important to realize that, particularly with respect to the unbeliever, Because by realizing the ugliness, the extent, the wickedness of sin, we come to that realization, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? There is no one who seeks after God, not even one. So how can we talk about salvation? Well, that is where the doctrine of election comes in. We now make a transition to the good news, salvation. 
And it's important to remember that when we introduced the doctrine of salvation several weeks ago, that we, we described it as a multifaceted kind of work. It has many components, and we can arrange these components into three fundamental categories. Redemption arranged, redemption accomplished, and redemption applied. So if we look at salvation, and we look at it in terms of these three categories, the arrangement of salvation, the accomplishment of salvation, and the application of salvation, we can look at it this way. The arrangement of salvation is something we can understand as being done before the foundation of the world. So before the start of time. And that's going to deal with the doctrine of election. That's what we're going to cover tonight. We can also talk about the doctrine of salvation, of of redemption, as being accomplished. Redemption was accomplished at a historical moment. And that is the moment of the cross. The moment when Jesus, the Son of God, the pure, spotless Son of God, took upon himself the sins of all who would believe and paid the penalty for the sin. And we then had access to his righteousness. And that is a historic moment. We call that the atonement. We're going to look at that beginning next week. And then we talk about the application of this work of redemption as it has been arranged and accomplished. The application of redemption is what occurs in relative time because each one of us here who have been saved have been saved under different circumstances at different times as God applies the work of Christ to us at different times. Some uh, on, in January of you know, 1970, others as John Ford shared on October the 2nd. What year was that, John? 1976, and so on and so forth. That's the application of salvation in relative time, relative to our own lives. And so tonight, let's look at salvation according to its arrangement, redemption arranged or redemption planned. Now, when we talk about the doctrine of election, we raise one of the most controversial topics in Christian theology And it's controversial for several reasons. Number one, it is difficult for the limited and faulty intellect that we have, as even as believers, our intellect doesn't fully work as it will one day. It's being transformed. And and that intellect is still limited. And it's very difficult for us as, as, as limited human beings with limited understanding and an understanding that doesn't work the way it should all the time for us to try to get our minds around the work of God that, that, that he does, especially as it relates to his decisions that he makes in timelessness and eternity. And so we come to something like election and we have a hard time with it partly because of our limited understanding. We also have a hard time with the doctrine of election because out of all the aspects of salvation, this is probably the one that's studied least. And ignorance then leads us to those moments where, where the, when the discussion does arise, we don't really know what the Bible teaches because of our ignorance. And we begin to rely on things like intuition and our sense of what's fair. And a lot of that just becomes a homespun theology and it's not really biblical and 
everybody has an opinion on election, but so much of it is not based in Scripture because of our ignorance. Thirdly, this is a controversial topic because the doctrine of election confronts human pride directly. The doctrine of human, uh, the doctrine of election is threatening to human pride. It's threatening. And so, and you raise the topic in any kind of discussion, everybody has a perspective on it, and often, very quickly, you see the reaction that comes out against it, and people begin to foment because it attacks human pride. In fact, one theologian said it this way, the doctrine of election reveals by the way that we respond to it, this knee-jerk reaction, the doctrine of election reveals our natural allergy to divine sovereignty. That's part of the sin that is still affecting us in our flesh. It affects us in something like this, that when we hear of something like divine election, the knee-jerk reaction is produced by the flesh that says, no, I won't have anything to do with this. And that comes down to the fact that it's an assault on our pride. We'll get to that as we close. But Scripture does deal with the issue of election. No one can deny it. There's terms in both the Hebrew and the Greek that clearly talk about choice. So we can't deny it. The issue is not about whether Scripture teaches election. There's many passages where the issue is addressed. And so we cannot ignore the issue despite the controversy, and more than this, how one understands the doctrine of election influences the rest of his understanding of salvation. So in many ways, we can call this a gateway doctrine. What you believe about election, divine election, when you come across that term in Scripture, what you believe about it is going to color everything else that we'll talk about when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. This is a gateway doctrine. One set of theologians put it this way. The doctrine of election is an important measuring rod for someone's theology. Since an acceptance or rejection of this doctrine reveals at once whether a person is biblically correct on such other doctrines as the nature and extent of sin, the bondage of the will, the full grace of God in salvation, and even the presentation of the gospel. What you believe about election is interrelated with all these things. It's a gateway doctrine. As we get into it, we have to talk about some terms and their definitions. Now, as I said, the doctrine of election is a weighty topic. And and I do want to say this, that When we do come across the teaching of election in the Bible, it is prevalent in Scripture. However, Scripture does not give us all the details. It doesn't answer all our questions. Scripture does not treat the doctrine of election exhaustively. We will have questions that we won't find answers to in the Scriptures. But what Scripture does present is enough. It is sufficient for us to believe and to be confident and to have conviction. And to those issues 
which Scripture does not address, those other questions left unanswered, we must recognize that it is those areas that are a mystery to us. We must avoid speculation. We must avoid relying upon, again, our faulty human understanding and instead simply land on the conviction that the judge of this universe will always judge justly. Now, as we get into this discussion, let's talk about the key terms. First of all, we're going to look at the term election. Secondly, when you talk about election, you also have to talk about a term called or a concept called reprobation. That's a tough one. We'll get to it. And then thirdly, the term predestination. You probably have heard of all these terms. Oh, you've heard of term election, I'm sure. Maybe not so much the term reprobation. You've also heard the term predestination. You may not be able to give a definition for that. Well, that's why we're here tonight. I want to explain how these terms fit together, how they relate to one another. Let's begin with the term election. A very simple definition given by Millard Erickson is this. Election is God's choice of certain persons for his special favor. God's choice of certain persons for his special favor. A more comprehensive definition is found in the Biblical Doctrine textbook by MacArthur and Mayhew, and it is defined there as follows. Election is the free and sovereign choice of God made in eternity past to set his love on certain individuals and on the basis of nothing in themselves but solely because of the good pleasure of his will to choose them to be saved from sin and damnation and to inherit the blessings of eternal life through the mediatorial work of Christ. That's a mouthful. You have it in your notes. So I want you to make sure that when you take your notes home tonight and use them for the rest of the week, that you you see the definition that's there. I've included it in the notes The key idea here is choice. That's what the term election means. Choice. Choice. And choice necessarily includes the idea of a selection of or, or, or several opportunities, several options, and the free will of the one who selects his choice. That's the concept of election. Now, according to the Bible, we see this term related to various objects. For example, even Jesus Christ is called the chosen one. The chosen one. The same term is used of him. He's the chosen one. Holy angels, the angels who are not fallen. Holy angels are called the elect angels or his chosen angels, referring to the fact that in God's planning, Those angels did not fall. They were God's elect, his elect angelic beings. The nation of Israel is called an elect nation, an elect people, a chosen people. And you could read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example, that there was nothing in them, nothing in the people of Israel that made them more worthy. In fact, when you go all the way back to Abram, and and you read Abram, and, and, and you read of his... God's choice of Abram in Genesis 12, and you look at what's said of Abram in the book of Joshua, that Joshua was an, or that Abram was an idolater and God chose him. 
to be the patriarch of the nation of Israel. Also, we see that the city of Jerusalem is called a chosen city. The king of Israel was to be a king chosen by God. And we read that Jesus' disciples were chosen. They didn't volunteer. They were chosen. We could go on and on, but the focus that we're looking at tonight is the, the, the use of that term elect as it refers to eternal life, the choice of individuals to eternal life. A second term here, reprobation. Now, this is a very difficult term, not really to define it, but because there's a knee-jerk reaction to this, the term reprobation is in no sense a positive term. You know, we sometimes will hear people call other people reprobates. A very negative term. Well, what does reprobation mean? Let me define it for you here. A simple definition of this term means this. Reprobation, according to Wayne Grudem, is God's sovereign decision to pass over others and not to save them. It's his sovereign decision to pass over sinners and not to save them. A more comprehensive definition is found in biblical doctrine by MacArthur and Mayhew, and they write the following. Reprobation is the free and sovereign choice of God made in eternity past to pass over certain individuals, choosing not to set his saving love on them, but instead determining to punish them for their sins unto the magnification of his justice. The idea here is that of passing over, passing over. That's the concept of reprobation. Maybe that's not the best term to use, but it is the term that theologians have chosen to describe what happens here. Election is God's choice. Reprobation is his passing over. Now, as I've said, the doctrine of reprobation is probably the most difficult doctrine in the Bible. It requires a very heightened sensitivity on our part to refrain from speculation, to refrain from intuition, to make sure that we develop a biblical understanding of these things, and that when Scripture teaches something, we believe it. And as we look at Scripture, and I'm going to take you through a text later on, but when we look at Scripture, it is important to note this, that when we talk about election and reprobation, they're not two sides of the same coin. Now, it may seem like that at first glance. We talk about election, we talk about reprobation, two sides of the same coin. They're symmetrical, we, some people would say wrongly. These are not symmetrical actions on God. They're not the same kind of actions on God's part. They're not strictly parallel. And I want to explain what I mean by that. There's four ways that I'm going to explain the difference between election and, and reprobation here. Because this is very important. Number one, there's different causation. Different causation. What do I mean by that? Different causation means this. Every human being is an enemy of God. God does not have to save anyone. All are worthy of condemnation. However, when God chose to save certain sinners, 
he chose to implement the actions that would cause saving faith in those who are chosen. He becomes the author of their faith. That's election. God knowing of sinners and planning before the foundation of the world that he would implement a cause to bring them to faith. That's election. Reprobation is different. When God decided to pass by certain sinners, he did not cause unbelief in them. He is not the author of their rebellion. They are fully responsible for their own sin, guilt, and condemnation. So there's a different causation here. In terms of election, God determines to be the cause of something that is alien to them in their sin. He is the cause of faith. But in the non-elect, God is not the cause of their immorality. God is not the cause of their rebellion. God is not the cause of their sin. Secondly, not only is there different causation, there is also what we say is different operation. There's a different operation that takes place. Now get this, this is very important. When God decided to elect certain individuals to salvation, he determined to work in them to transform them into what they were not. He chose, through election, to make sinners into saints. He chose to make these certain individuals conform to the image of his son, Romans 8.29. We'll get to that text in a little bit. It's a different operation. God then decides, he determines, he is going to operate in them in a certain way to transform them from being a sinner into a saint. That is not how reprobation works. Reprobation is different. When God chose to pass by certain sinners, he did not choose to transform them into what they were not. Reprobation is not God taking a saint and making him a sinner. It's very important to understand that. God does not take a saint and make him a sinner. The non-elect remain who they were, sinners. And in that sense, reprobation is passive in its operation. There's a third difference here, a different foundation. When God decided to elect certain individuals to salvation, he determined to save them apart from anything they would ever do. Election is not based on what is deserved. Election is unconditional in that sense, in that God does not base it on just deserts. None of the elect, those who are elected to salvation, ever deserve that gift. But the doctrine of reprobation is different. When God chose to pass by certain sinners, he determined to judge them according to just deserts. He determined to judge them according to everything they would ever do. Do you understand that? 
It's a big difference because often people will look at this and say, this is so unjust, this whole thing. You know, the only justice that is truly demonstrated is with the reprobate. The elect, those who receive mercy, they don't get justice. They get compassion. There's a fourth motivation here. When God elected certain individuals to salvation, he determined that in them he would put on, his, put on display his grace and his mercy. There's a different motivation. In the elect, God says, you know what? I am going to display in them my grace, my mercy. I'm going to make them trophies of these qualities, grace and mercy. The doctrine of reprobation is different. When God chose to pass by certain sinners, he determined that in them he would put on display his justice. His justice. Thus, contrary to what is often argued, the non-elect are not victims of any injustice on God's part. To the contrary, the non-elect are recipients of God's perfect justice. Now, that's sobering. That's sobering. Let that sink in. I'm going to look at some texts here. I'm going to skip through some of these texts here or slides. You can look at them when you get them by email later on. One more term here as we move on quickly, term predestination. Predestination essentially covers both of these categories. According to MacArthur and Mayhew, generally, predestination is God's eternal, uninfluenced determination of all things. But specifically, predestination is God's eternal choice of those who will be saved and those who will be passed over and condemned for their sin. So you could look at it this way. Predestination is that term that, that, that encompasses both activities, his, his decision of election and his decision of reprobation. But again, do not equate election and reprobation as symmetrical or as two sides of the same coin. They are fundamentally different for those four reasons that I just went through with you. In fact, sometimes people will want to use the term double predestination. Isn't that double predestination? And I would say, don't use the term double predestination. Yes, indeed, God is sovereign over both of these activities, over election and reprobation. He's sovereign. But double predestination connotes this idea that both of these actions are the same kinds of actions. And as I said, they are not. Election and reprobation are not the equal kinds of actions. They are not two sides of the same coin. They are not directly parallel. And therefore, when people use the term double predestination, it communicates the wrong idea. Predestination, which encompasses the specific act or decision of election. And on the other hand, another kind of work called reprobation, but they're different actions. And like I said, these are in your notes, and I'll give you these slides. I want you to go over these, spend more time in those definitions. But let's get to some biblical evidence here as our time is getting away from us here. Biblical evidence. There are many texts, and, and in fact, I, I would wish we could have time to go through all of these. I'm going to turn your attention to some of these, and you can go through them on your own. 
The first one is Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 6. Let me read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And you look at this and you can see that God's election here is unilaterally. He chose us. We didn't choose him. It's mediatorial. He did so in Christ. He did so through Jesus Christ. It is eternal in that this is done before the foundation of the world. And it is individual in that it's not just a group. It's individuals. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. We could look at it more and we could see that it's purposeful. We could see that it's so that we would be holy and blameless. We could see that it's merciful. It's bathed in love. He did this to give us every spiritual blessing. It is done in love. And it's done according to the kind intention of his will. It's done by his grace. And it's unconditional. It is purely according to his kind intention. We can look at 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Where Paul says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. Again, we see it's unilateral. God has chosen you. It's individual. God has chosen you, brethren. Paul had specific members of a local church in mind. It was merciful. The term beloved by the Lord, Paul connects with the concept of election. And that term beloved is what we call a perfect passive participle. The idea is this. You can translate it as follows, as those who have come to be loved by God. And that's what election is. Choice of God to shower his undeserved love upon us. It's purposeful. It is chosen for salvation and it's mediatorial. He has means that he brings through which he brings this about through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. Acts 13 verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, that the gospel was now being preached to them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Get the order there correct. He doesn't say, and as many as had believed were appointed to eternal life. The difference there makes all the world in theology. And notice there too, it's individual, as many as it's unilateral they had been appointed it's purposeful to eternal life and it's effectual as many has been appointed believed we can look at romans eight twenty nine to 30 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Again, individual, those, those, unilateral. It's those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It's purposeful to become conformed to the image of his son, and it's efficacious. You see, those whom he predestined are the same ones, no less, no more than those he glorifies. Now, some argue here that predestination in this text is contingent upon foreseen faith, that God looked through the the tunnels of time, and as he looked through time, he saw those who would believe, and so he retroactively chooses them for salvation. That is not the meaning of this verb here. When this verb is found to foreknow, when it is used to refer to things or to events, it does refer to foreknowledge in the sense of to know beforehand. But when this verb has a person as the object of it, to foreknow someone, it does not speak of knowledge beforehand. The verb is used to speak of an intimate relationship. The establishment of an intimate relationship. Christ himself is called the, the one who is foreknown. First Peter 1 verse 20. And that's not God the Father looking through the tunnels of time to see that there'd be a Christ. No, this term refers to the establishment or the enjoyment of a personal intimate relationship. And it's, when we come back to Romans eight twenty nine, it's precisely because of God's decision to establish with you a personal relationship of love. It's on that basis that he predestines you to be glorified. Now, I want to get to Romans 9. Romans 9 contains the most extensive discussion, the doctrine of election in Scripture, and I want to highlight in the remaining time just a few verses. Romans 9, this great Mount Everest in theology, and in verses 11 to 13, we have these words, For though the twins, speaking of Esau and Jacob, were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In this text, we see both election and reprobation. Choice and passing over. First of all, Jacob is the one identified as the chosen one, the one who receives God's undeserved love, not based on anything that Jacob would do. He is the one loved. But he's the second son. He's the second. And in that economy, the firstborn, who is Esau, is always the one to receive the blessing. But Esau was the one passed over. He was really no different than Jacob. But God chose one and he passed over the other. And to express the concept of passing over, you have this language, Esau I hated. 
Not in the emotional sense as we think of that, not in an immoral sense, but one expresses God's choice to to furnish with all kinds of love and privilege. The other is the one God passes over. And notice this is unconditional. It's not based on anything good or bad that they had done, the Scripture says, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who called. Turn just a few verses later to Romans 9, verses 14 to 16. Paul anticipates an objection. Paul anticipates an objection. And this is it. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now remember this, God does not need to save anyone. He is just in condemning all sinners to eternal condemnation. The exercise of mercy here, the exercise of compassion is neither demanded by justice nor deserved by the guilty. The exercise of mercy, the the, the decision not to punish is the sole prerogative of the law giver. You see, if mercy was required, if it was demanded, mercy would no longer be mercy. Mercy would be justice. But there's a difference. And you see, part of the problem, and this is where our knee-jerk reaction sets in, we look at mercy as a birthright. We look at grace as something we naturally deserve as an inheritance. That is not our birthright. It is not our inheritance. Our inheritance is punishment. Our birthright is condemnation. So when the scripture says that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion, that is his prerogative to say, you know what? I will not exercise my just righteous judgment in this case. I will show mercy. I will show mercy. The emphasis here is that predestination, God's choice of whether to punish according to justice or to have compassion or grace is God's sole and unconditional prerogative. One more text I want to look at in Romans 9, verses 19 to 21. Paul anticipates another objection. Paul anticipates the objection that as people are reading through this, or even just as he himself is considering a hypothetical audience, he says, will you say then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Here is the ultimate Opposition to predestination. Why does God do this? And Paul answers that with the analogy of the clay and the potter. 
And he wants us to remember one thing. He says, there is one lump, the same lump. Now get that. It's very important in this argument. One lump. That lump is humanity. Totally depraved humanity. Remember what Paul says in Romans 3. This is Romans 9. That same lump is the same kind of people, and they're all totally depraved. No one who seeks after God, not even one. That's the lump. The material that is used most often from that lump of clay is the vessel that is used for common use. That's what clay does. Clay is very average. You make clay pots out of it. But occasionally, it is used to make a vessel of honor. What is Paul saying here? Again, understand this. How can the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? So let's start off with this picture, this analogy. Here you have the same lump, sinful humanity. And this lump is sinful humanity is natural. It naturally makes the clay pots. That's what it naturally does. How can that clay pot say, why did you make this like, why did you make me like this? It's the substance of what they were. Clay, common. But occasionally, a potter can take that clay and make a vessel of honor. Clay doesn't deserve it. The clay should have been made into a clay pot. But God occasionally Upon those he decides to have compassion, he takes them from the lump and he makes them beautiful. That's the picture that Paul is getting at here. And so we must understand the only inconsistent thing in this analogy are those pots that are made for honor. That's the only inconsistent thing. That's the only thing that you could say, this is illogical, Wait a minute, what's illogical? The only illogical thing about this is that lump of clay, part of that, making a beautiful vase of honor. As we close, I want to consider very quickly some practical implications. Number one, the doctrine of election enables our evangelism. In light of the severity of total depravity, evangelism would be pointless if God had not determined to draw specific sinners to himself. We don't know who these sinners are, so we broadcast the gospel far and wide. But if we truly believe in total depravity, total inability, do you truly believe that? How can you take the gospel to someone who is unable to please God and is a rebellion at heart, a a rebel at heart? How can you take the gospel to them unless you believe that God does intervene? By grace. That's election. That's election. And we see this in Acts chapter 18 when the Apostle Paul is weary in Corinthians and in Acts chapter 18, in in Corinth, and in Acts 18, verses 9 to 10, Jesus actually appears to him and says these words Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this place. Paul goes on to spend an, an extended amount of time there, and a church is formed. 
You've probably heard of John Payton, the 19th century missionary to some islands in the South Pacific. He buried his wife there, buried a newborn child, guarded the graves from the cannibals. Many times in his life, he was within seconds of being killed. He said this, Father, you have, a cho- you have chosen a people out of every tribe and tongue to be saved. Some of those chosen ones are on this island, and I will not leave until they are safely in the fold. This is coming from a man who believed in divine election, a man who buried his own wife there in the islands in the sand. Because of illness, death, the consequences of living there, this inspires missions. And whether it's John Payton, whether it's William Carey, Adoniram Judson, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, the greatest evangelists have been men who believed firmly in divine election. Secondly, the doctrine of election eliminates our pride. Election shows that salvation is entirely of the Lord, that it is entirely by grace alone. And there's one question that really must be asked, the only right question in response to this. Why did God choose to show mercy to me? If you understand the depravity that you once were in, you realize there was no hope. No hope. You know what you were worthy of, and it wasn't mercy. But God chose to take some of the lump and make a vessel of honor. The question is, why was that you? Why was that you? Why aren't you with the rest of the clay pots that are just discarded? The clay pots that are worthy of judgment. Why weren't you in that number? That's the question to ask. If you, totally, if you truly believe in total depravity, why was I chosen and not passed over? That humbles us. Unlike anything else, Spurgeon said it this way, I know of nothing, nothing again that is more humbling for us than this doctrine of election. I have sometimes fallen prostrate before it. When endeavoring to understand it, I have stretched my wings and eagle-like I have soared towards the sun. Steady has been my eye and true my wing for a time. But when I came near it, and the one thought possessed me, God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation. I was lost in its luster. I was staggered with the mighty thought. And from dizzy elevation came down my soul, prostrate and broken, saying, Lord, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. Why me? Why me? End quote. This is what the doctrine of election does. It leads us to ask the question, 
Why am I a recipient of mercy? Why when God said, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, that I am in that group. I don't deserve to be there. It's illogical. It makes no sense. It's not what I deserve. And yet, for no reason in me, no reason in you, he said, I am deciding that I will pour my favor I will withhold the fury of my wrath over his wretched sin and instead give him all the blessings of my glory. The doctrine of election then energizes our worship. The answer to the question of why did God chose to show mercy to me leads to one simple answer. He did because he loves me. He loves me. I'm not worthy. I didn't deserve it. He loves me. This realization leads to the most heartfelt, sincere worship. Fourthly and finally, the doctrine of election establishes our hope. Come back to Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose all things, and then continue reading in verse 29, for the explanation why we can believe this, that every single detail in the believer's life is working together for good without exception. Nothing is outside of that plan of God to work towards the good. Nothing. Why can we believe that? Why can you have that as a a mantle above your fireplace? Why can you cite Romans 8, 28, and it's because of what comes in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he decided to know personally, lovingly, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also glorified. You read in the very next verse, then Paul says, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, Spurgeon, close with these words. I am persuaded that the doctrine of predestination is one of the softest pillows upon which the Christian can lay his head and one of the strongest staffs upon which he may lean in his pilgrimage along this rough road. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are for us, heavy, heavy topics. Heavy because they stretch our understanding. They bring out that flesh that reacts negatively like an allergy to the teaching of your divine sovereignty. It's difficult for us because our minds are so limited. It's, it's unfathomable for us to be able to understand all these things and how they work together, we confess to you mystery. It's difficult because it confronts that pride that still remains. But when we get beyond that, as you reveal more of yourself to us in this doctrine, it is difficult for us on the one hand because we ask, why me? 
we can't find anything in ourselves that would explain why you would choose to show mercy. There is nothing. It seems illogical. Why would you do this to us? On the other hand, we rejoice because we don't get what we deserve. We we get your grace and your mercy. We get your love, your compassion. We get your fellowship. We get your life. You've made us a vessel of honor, trophy of your grace. And we thank you for that. And I pray for the men here. There might be some here who are still resisting. I pray that you would humble them. And that this would be a moment when they would give up that pride. And they would submit to the clear teaching of your word. And then come to embrace the wonder of this marvelous doctrine. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.